0: Going to pick up Matthew chapter sixteen in our study this morning so let 's uh, let 's just start with a word of prayer, Heavenly Father, we come to you as we open Matthew sixteen and we ask for your special blessing and guidance as we seek to understand your Word and to understand your dear Son and Lord Jesus. We pray that you will open our eyes to you and to your word, your intention, your hope for us and that we might learn from these records of your life and your teaching, and that you might be alive for us this day and every day, and that we also might be as those men who walked around Galilee following you, that we in our lives in this age might follow them, and in essence be them, and be centred upon you, both now and evermore. Amen. So Matthew 16 begins, the Pharisees also with the Sadducees came uh, and Came together, and the, the idea of also they also with the, the the Sadducees. I think the idea is that they joined themselves together, and this is quite a theme in the in the, the Gospels that the enemies of Jesus somehow join themselves together. Now, for example, when the Lord dies, Pilate and Herod are made friends together, and Acts four actually says that the Jews and the Gentiles came together to do what they did against Jesus. Now. By the same token, by the same token, the Lord Jesus, particularly in his death, is to be the focal point for the believers. And so he forces a situation in which the fundamental divide is between his people who are gathered around him and the world that is gathered against him. And where I think that's significant is that there should not be, on that basis, any division within the camp of those who are around Jesus. And in fact, to separate ourselves from those who are around him is in fact uh, to declare ourselves in one sense with, with the world. Anyway, they came to him and they, they tempted him. And we think of the Lord's wilderness temptations in the wilderness and the whole enigmatic situation there of you know who is the Satan, who is the adversary. And The essence of those wilderness temptations repeated throughout his ministry. You remember, the devil left him for a season, the AV says, implying that he, or it, or whatever, returned. And all these incidents of the Lord being tempted are nearly always at the hands of the Jews, which is what leads me to suspect that the adversary that tempted the Lord in the desert, it could have been his own internal thinking, but his own internal thinking in terms of Judaism, that he found Orthodox Judaism a big temptation, very attractive. And likewise, if it was, if if the, the, the principles behind the adversary were in fact personalized in a single being, a single person, then maybe it was a representative of that Jewish system. That's just in passing. Well, they came... And uh, they wanted to see a sign from heaven, implying that they thought that he was from beneath, he was from the underworld, he was in league with what they understood to be Satan. Uh, and they want this sign from heaven. And this is exactly the situation that you had back in Matthew 12, 38 and, uh, and 39. And again, the Lord answers it by talking about the sign of Jonah. and. The, the critics love to, to look at this uh, parallel between Matthew 12 and Matthew 16 here about the sign of Jonah and say, oh yeah, Matthew just mixed his, uh, mixed his material, um, there, there's a mess up in the text here. You know, by reading and rereading the Gospel records carefully, I have never found a single case where they actually contradict. And that is incredible. That is incredible, of course, as people say that there are points of contradiction, but that is, I would say because they have not really read and reread and reread the records they are simply grabbing on surface level uh, contradiction it 's typical in any kind of missionary or teaching work that you face the same questions and you answer those questions sometimes with the very same words. You get so used to answering the questions that you, you trot out the same sort of answer pretty well verbatim. a few changes here and there. But that has got the ring of truth to it, and anyone who's done any amount of teaching or missionary work will, will tell you that. Even the school teacher who's teaching the same old curriculum year in, year out will say, oh yeah, you know, every uh, every couple of months, someone asks the question about so and so, and I, I give this pat sort of answer. And that's exactly what happened with, with Jesus. Now that it would be, it's facile really and intellectually desperate to say, look here, there, there's a contradiction or, or ah, look, uh, now that no, he said this about the son of the prophet Jonah in chapter 12 and then he puts it just a few words differently in chapter 16. Yeah, that's actually, that's actually got the ring of truth about it. If as I believe this is all eyewitness account. Well, the, the Lord says, Um, you are looking for a sign from heaven and uh, when it's evening you say it will be fair fair weather in the morning uh, because the sky is red in the evening. Well, they were looking for a sign from heaven and so he's kind of going along with them because the Greek and Aramaic and Hebrew words for heaven and for sky are, are, are the same. So he says, okay. So let's let's look at the sky. When it's red in the uh, in the evening, you say that it's going to be fair in the morning. Now, fair weather is not actually the, the the literal translation. There is no Greek word behind the word weather. You say it will be fair in the morning. Well, most of the other usages of that Greek word translated fair refer to acceptance with God. I'll give you a few examples. Well done. It's the same word, fair or fair weather. Well done, good and faithful servant. So Matthew twenty-five. Well done, you good servant. In, in Luke nineteen verse seventeen, literally fair, fair weather, as it's translated here. So he's saying that if you perceive the sign of, of the of the heaven or the sky in the evening, if you get it right, then your morning. Will be of acceptance. It will be well done. It will be fair. As I say, the same Greek word translated well done as translated fair. Weather has no no Greek original word behind it. But if you don't, as, as I understand what he's saying, if, uh, if you don't, and it's going uh, kind to, of, and you only perceive it, you, you only see that sign in the morning then it will be foul weather. And the word really does mean a tempest or a storm, which is used again by the Lord as a metaphor for condemnation. So then I think what he's saying then is that if you perceive the sign in the evening, then your morning will be fair, will be well done, will be acceptance. But if only in the morning do you perceive the sign, then this will be condemnation, and what is the uh, what is the the sign ahead of time than after the event when it's too late and it becomes a portent of your condemnation? But in what sense then was the resurrection of Jesus a sign to the Jews? Because of course the the big issue is that Jesus rose from the dead, but he did not stand up and say that the like in front of everybody. He appeared privately, privately to those who already believed in him. So in what sense then was his resurrection this public sign? It's like in Acts 17.31, God gave assurance unto all men in that he raised Christ from the dead. But who saw him? You know, actually physically saw him, just at the most a few hundred believers who had a private audience with him. Why not a public declaration? And in what sense, therefore, could this private appearance of Jesus to people who already believed in him, in what sense could this be counted as the sign of the prophet Jonah? Well, I think it's because the witness of the resurrected, uh, the, the witness of the, of the believers who had been baptized into the body of Christ, that was effectively meeting Jesus. They were, we are, the body of Christ. I mean, the the Christian message had such a slim chance of ever being believed in those days. Because, you know, people didn't travel very far, not more than 50 Ks from their birthplace, most of them. And the idea that there was this man in, in Israel who was actually conceived by the Holy Spirit, his mother was a virgin, and you know what, she's the only woman in history who ever got pregnant without a man, and it was from God... And uh, this guy never sinned well they didn 't worry too much about sin as a concept in those days, but anyway he uh, he lived a perfect life, then he was crucified. yuck, that means he died the most shameful death uh, and then, after three days, he rose again where 's the body um, well uh, yeah, there wasn 't any public display. he just appeared privately to a few people and then what happened? Well, then he went all the way up to heaven and he 's right now up in heaven and if you believe in him, get baptized into him, you get forgiveness of sin. I mean, that, that message I had pretty well zero chance of being believed. It sounded crazy. Because the obvious question was, look here, where is he? I'm not against you man, but where is he? Can I talk to him? The answer to that question was, yes, yeah, sure, I'm talking to you. You know, the body of Christ was there in the believing community, just as it is today. And that is why people believe that message, which was really against all odds that anyone would believe it, and risk so much to accept it. It's like when Peter says, uh, Jesus has died, resurrected, ascended to heaven, and he is mediating forgiveness of sin from heaven. And of that I am a witness. Really, Peter? Like you went to heaven and checked it out? No. But the point is that Peter was so convinced of his own receipt of personal forgiveness that it was as if he was the direct witness that the Son of God had not only died and resurrected, but was now in heaven, and from thence was mediating the forgiveness of sin. And of course, that's why what really persuades people is not so much reading, text off a page even of the Bible, the inspired word of God but meeting you and me because we are we are the body of Christ we are him, we are the answer to this obvious question, yeah okay but where is he, and where's the body what happened to the body, you know how do you know but he's right in front of you focus upon the disciples and the the ministering women Uh, rather like in Luke 15, leaving the ninety-nine sheep in the wilderness, it's the same word here actually, and uh, going after the the one lost to to get it back and into the Father's house. So it's as if in Matthew 12, the Lord, and and 13, the Lord has really said, I'm turning away from a mass appeal to Israel, I'm just focusing on the disciples, and he he says there that he's leaving the, the masses, and yet here you have him again. Uh, with them, and then getting disappointed and saying, right, I'm leaving. And isn't that so similar with what Paul did? He says, you know, I- I'm I- I'm departing from you Jews, and now I shall just focus on the Gentiles. And what do you find? He keeps coming back to the synagogues. He keeps coming back to trying to witness to the Jews. Now, this is not a sort of a, a light-hearted attitude to life where your word is not your bond. This is the tenacity of love. This is where somebody says, right, look, I'm out of here with you. But because they love that person, they keep coming back. And that's what Paul did to the Jews. And this is what Jesus did to the Jews. He says, look, I'm leaving. I'm off. I'm just going to focus on those that are interested. But he finds himself back witnessing to them because he loved them. Simple as that. Now the disciples in verse five, had forgotten to take bread. And this is a bit of an anticlimax. So the Lord is saying, look, I'm turning away from Israel as a whole, and I'm focusing on the disciples. But then they themselves seem somehow off with him in this incident. They themselves seem somewhat separated from him. They had forgotten to take bread, and they figured that there was something significant in bread. Um and uh, the Lord uh, says that you're too influenced by the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Well, he's used yeast earlier in chapter 13 as a symbol of teaching. So he's saying, look, uh, beware of the teaching of those religious leaders. And because they had been influenced by the teaching of the, uh, of the Jews, and this comes out time and time again, like when they're all so concerned oh, Master, do you realize the Jews were really offended when you said that? Like, well, we wouldn't want to offend them, now would we? Um, It seems to me that they got this uh, idea in their head from the Pharisees that, oh, there were times that you must take bread, and they'd forgotten to take bread, etc., and they felt bad about it. This is what happens when legalistic teachers get involved with simple-minded folks. They, they lead those poor people into all kind of self-doubt and worry whether we're doing this right or maybe I did that wrong. It's all nonsense. They didn't worry about it at all. It's the, the yeast, the result of legalistic, uh, teaching. And the Lord rebukes them and he, he says verse, uh, verse eight, Oh you of little faith, now, at first blush, I think I would look at that and think, well, if I were Jesus, I would have said, how little you understand. But instead, he says, Oh you have little faith? But, of course, faith and understanding do go together. Now, I'm not glorifying intellectualism or saying that it's all about correct interpretation, but there is a but there. Faith has got to have content. If you say, yeah, I believe... Well, what do you believe in? This is one of the problems with a lot of evangelical, uh, so-called evangelism, that, oh, believe in Jesus. Uh, That's not all the gospel is. You've got to put some content into this word, Jesus. What do you mean, believe in Jesus? Ah, yeah, sure. And I walk on down the street, knowing absolutely nothing, believing nothing. So, when he says, you of little faith, It's clearly in terms of meaning, in terms of semantics, he means you have little understanding. So he's saying understanding and faith are related. And uh, this word pistis, which is one of the New Testament words for faith, is translated in in the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, as both faith and truth. In other words, faith has got content, and faith is related to uh, truth to to some sort of correct understanding. That's why the emphasis is very much in the Old Testament upon knowing Yahweh, or in the New Testament, know the Lord, uh, because that is to believe in Him. There is a connection then between knowledge and belief. I'm not saying uh, I'm not touching on the issue of how much knowledge or what. Nature of knowledge, I'm simply saying that there's got to be content to faith. And don't fall for this simplistic sort of idea that, quote, you've just got to believe in Jesus. What do you mean? You've got to put meaning into that word. Do you mean that i got to believe in Jesus as what? You know? As a, you know, as a Superman, as a, a, I don't know, a Buddha, as the the prophet of Islam. You know, what do you mean? You've got to believe in Jesus. And you've got to put content into that. Verse 13. When Jesus came into the borders of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Well, I think you see him here working in educating the twelve according to a kind of a program. They had been out of Jewish territory, and he'd been trying to explain to them about himself, and now, like a good teacher, now they're back within this particular area, now he asks them what for him was a key question. He doesn't start off by saying, who do you say that I am? He starts off by saying, who do men say that I am? And then he moves on to, who do you say that I am? And again, you see him there as the great teacher, the great psychologist, really, extraordinaire, that he starts off by saying, look, place me in the wider context. Who do men say that I am across the spectrum? What's the spectrum of belief about me? And then he moves in personally, and who do you say that I am? And that that is just basic, if you like, teaching psychology. Get the student to see the wider picture of all the different possibilities that there are about something, the various theories, and then what do you think? You see that in textbook after textbook. Here's all the different theories, and now here's a question, and what do you think? And the Lord really had thought out what he was doing. I mean, he really had. He wasn't just living day by day, making it up as he went along. He clearly was working to a program that he had worked out. And the degree to which God uh, gave him that program compared to the degree to which he worked it out for himself, that's something we could uh, think about and chat about maybe later. Well, he says, who do people say, according to the King James, that I, the Son of Man, am? Well, as that stands in the Greek, that's a very messy construction. Who do people say that I, the Son of Man, am? You could argue that he is using the I am. That is, this is another allusion to the name of God. And, you know, John five forty three, I came in my Father's name. He carried the Father's name. Let us not forget that. Although we don't accept that Jesus was God himself, he carried the Father's name, and yet he 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 definitely prefers the Son of Man as his favorite title. So I think you would have here an example then of what we could call juxtaposition. That means putting together two different sort of strands of thinking. I am the I am, and I am the Son of Man, the human side and the the divine side. And he puts them together. And in discussing with Trinitarians, I have found so often that they'll quote a verse. Okay? Uh, For example, from from Hebrews 1. uh, About uh, what in their idea proves that Jesus is God. And yet, within the same passage, within the same chapter of the verse that they have quoted to prove as they see it, their idea that Jesus is God, you find the clearest statements that Jesus is actually human and was not God. This is why so many of the verses that uh, Trinitarians will quote are from the Gospel of John, and yet so many verses within the Gospel of John could not be clearer as to the Lord's humanity, you know? Where is he recorded as saying, my father is greater than I? John. Where is he, 1428, where is he recorded as saying, I'm going to my father who's my father, who's your father, to my God who's your God? John, 2017. But of course, where do you get all the quote, difficult passages about the nature of Jesus from? Gospel of John. My point is that these two ideas of his human side and his divine side run close together. And this is, I think, maybe the clearest example. Who do people say that I, the Son of Man, am? I am the I am. I am that I am. Basically, it's what uh, And yet I'm the Son of Man. The, the two things run parallel beautifully. There's another possibility, though. You could retranslate this as him simply saying, Who do men say that I am? The Son of Man? And that would fit in with his whole theme about turning away from Israel because they have not accepted the teaching and the ministry of John the Baptist. Because we saw that in chapters 12 and 13 that although the people streamed out to listen to John and they loved the hardline message, they loved the conviction of sin, and yeah, I'm a sinner, yes, baptize me. Actually, his answer, his long-term answer to the problem of human sin and failure was, Jesus, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And yet, the masses did not accept, ultimately, that Jesus was Messiah. So he's saying, do, do people say that I'm the Son of Man? Do they believe that I'm Messiah? And the disciples basically say, no, they don't. They say you're John the Baptist. They say that, you know, you're like us, as people thought in those times, that you sort of reincarnated, you came back, the dead person came back in another form, uh, that they think you're John the Baptist, they think you're Elijah, like there was a time when it seems that Elijah, that John the Baptist lost his nerve a bit and started to wonder whether he was the prophet proclaiming Messiah or whether he'd just been the prophet proclaiming Elijah. And uh, the people had fallen for that, maybe, and decided, ah, oh, yeah, maybe this Jesus is Jesus Elijah, uh, the Elijah prophet, or maybe he's one of the prophets. But they didn't really accept that Jesus was the Messiah. And this leads up, of course, to the disciples saying, but we think that you're the Messiah. And just uh, pause there to take a, a lesson that um, really these these people um, who t- is trooped out to to listen to John. I mean, John had huge success on on sort of paper theoretically. I mean, all Jerusalem and Judea went out to him to the River Jordan, which was quite a trek from Jerusalem uh, to be baptized, and he, he was. Tough and hard hitting with them, people like a hard, tough message, very often, and they respond to it. But they didn't actually get to Jesus, even though John was, as he said, the uh, the best man. And he said, you know, here's Jesus, my work's done, I'm gone. You know, I did my bit. Here he is, follow him. But they didn't get that. And so you can be very into religion. You can be very into, uh, being baptized and smitten for your sins and, and yes, give me the hard line. People in their thousands will go for that, but you still, they still don't find Christ. And that is exactly what happened in the ministry of John the Baptist. And so he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. And this is, obviously set up in the style of the record as if this is the great sort of achievement that he has come to this sort of pinnacle of understanding that, you know, you are the Messiah. But in John chapter 1 verse 41, John opens his gospel with the idea of Andrew and Peter uh, meeting Jesus and believing from the start that he is Messiah. But here you get the sense, uh, quite a while later in the ministry, that Peter has come to this kind of pinnacle of understanding that he is Messiah. And yet, as we're going to see, he still doesn't quite get it, because he doesn't get the connection between Messiah and suffering on the cross. He has a totally different idea of what Messiah should be. So I think in all that you see the growth of Peter and all the disciples. Although they were using the same terms, Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. Israel's hope he is the Son of God. Yet over time the meaning that they put into those same words increased. They went up and up. And that is the pattern for all of us that the the truth, the, the true propositions about the Lord Jesus that we might have even learnt from, from childhood, some of us it's not that anything in one sense changes, that you realize when you're 30 that he wasn't the son of God, uh, you know, or whatever. No, um, it's simply that those basic truths have so much more meaning loaded into them as you go on in, in your life. And the Lord says, blessed, you are blessed, because flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you but my Father. In other words, your understanding of me is a blessing. And straight away, you you see there the idea that God works directly on human hearts. You know, Lydia, her heart was opened so that she believed the things that were taught to her. It's not as if God sort of faces off against man over an open Bible and says, look, guys, if you understand it, if you read it right, I'm here for you. If you don't, well, that's it. But no. God is reaching across that open Bible. I'm not at all deprecating in any sense the importance of the Bible as the inspired Word of God and the only, in that sense, ultimate source of truth about Him. What I am saying, that it is also not only about the Bible. Because in that case, sorry to be apparently facile, but uh, illiterate people haven't got a chance then, have they? You know? Um, People who maybe are just not that smart, who can't make the the steps of interpretation as they read a text, be it the Bible or any text, uh, they don't have a chance. Our understanding and our the fact that we are where we are at this given moment, right now, is a gift. Is a gift to us. We have been given that understanding. And. We have to remember that, and that, that is what, in all our struggles with others about regarding interpretation of the Bible, that is what should keep us humble. That it is not by your unaided intellectual ability that you have got the understandings that you have, you now hold. You have been given them, and that is a blessing. That is a gift, and you should be humbled by that. Well, Peter has just said, you are the Christ, and in verse 18, uh, Jesus sort of uh, banters back and says and you are peter um, he gives him a name which is not attested peter as a uh, a common name in uh, in the first century looking at inscriptions etc on graves and so forth that have been uncovered he gives him a name that is basically slang that really means rocky it's like calling a guy rocky and the, of course the funny thing is with peter that on many uh, indicators, he was not rock. He was very weak. You know, he denies the Lord. He, he's sort of one minute, oh, you're never going to wash my feet. Oh, well, okay, yeah, wash my whole body. Uh, then in Galatians 2, we read that Peter, the AV says, dissembled, that he he was shaken, that when the the big senior brethren came from Jerusalem, he wouldn't eat with the Gentiles. And then when they left, he did. And Paul has to get a hold of him and say, look here, Pete, you're in the wrong, mate. You are absolutely wishy-washy. In one minute, you're this way; and the next minute, you're the other way, uh, which was, of course, true. You know what Paul says in criticism of Peter in Galatians two is, is true as far as it goes, um, and yet Jesus calls him rocky, and I think that just shows that. The Lord Jesus looks at people far differently to us, not just in that he looks far more generously on people than we do, but he looks simply differently. That he saw in Peter a rock. He saw a core basis of faith in him as the Messiah, as the Son of God. And, you know, that is how the Lord looks, I'm sure, at so many of us, Uh, and it can be when you look at people who irritate you. Maybe in church life, you think, ah, oh, yeah. But look, she's here and then she's gone, and him. Well, you know, he's here and then he's gone, and he's yeah. Look, he's got his extracurricular interests and activities, shall we say, that uh, not that smart and so forth. But you know what? I can think of two people just as I say these words to you. I think one brother and one sister. I right, have very much in mind when when I say these things to you. And you know what? They've been around. They've been around in my life for about 25 years. And actually, like it or not, whether well, I like it or not, they actually are like rock. Because in their core heart, they really believe. Whereas I know people who are baptized, who seemed wonderful, who were not at all, uh, you know, unstable, who looked as solid as a rock, who turned around and said, you know what, just kidding. I don't believe a word of this. Or people who appear like that and then something big comes up in their life, they're gone. You know, parent dies or marriage problem or something. And the next few years, you know, year down the track, they're atheists. I, I mean, you know, how God sees is different. How God sees is simply different and we have to bear that in mind. And Jesus says, you're Peter, and upon this rock, I will build my church. Well, the rock, in a sense, was Peter. Because he just said, you are rocky. You are the rock, Peter. And yes, Peter was the one who was used to start the church off. And we mustn't react too strongly against Roman Catholic uh, misinterpretations of Peter. Uh, We've got to accept that Peter is the one who's nearly always first in the list of all the disciples. He clearly was the leader of the early church, and the Lord used him to baptize you know five thousand people uh, three thousand in one day at the day of Pentecost. He was used mightily as the one to start the church let 's face that and yet of course, it is also true that the the uh, the basis of uh, his rock likeness was his confession that Jesus is the Son of God. And you could quite rightly say that that belief in Jesus as the Son of God is the rock, that that is the the basis upon which I will build my church. Just notice, I will build my church on that rock. It's not, as I say, that God is facing off against man over an open Bible and saying, you guys, get on with it. I gave you my son, given you my word, see you at judgment day. It's not like that. The Lord Jesus is active he is building a church upon the rock of men like Peter and, and myself and yourself, and upon our faith in, in Jesus as the Son of God. He is building. And yet clearly, he is wishing us to, to connect what he's saying here with his own parable at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and end of Matthew 7, where he says that the man who hears my sayings and does them is as a man who builds his house upon the rock. So, here he's saying, I build my house, my church, upon the rock. And yet, Matthew 7, says, you've got to build your house upon the rock of belief in my words, belief in me. And so, we build, and he builds. In other words, in all our progress from that first belief in Jesus, that he is the Son of God, that he is the Messiah of Israel, but from that first flush of faith, that we build And he builds. He confirms us in those efforts. He builds. We are co-workers with him. So then, the question again that we could discuss afterwards is how much content is required to, as it were, have a rock upon which the Lord Jesus starts to build. Because it would appear that that rock is belief in Jesus as the Son of God. And what else? Well, he doesn't define anything else here, does he? You may say that belief in Jesus as the Son of God implies a belief of certain things and a rejection of other beliefs. That, that is true. Uh, but, well, we can discuss it. But I would uh, simply say that I do not see, I do not see suddenly, specifically defined anything much more. And from that first faith, he will build and you will build. Now he says, I will build my church. My church. Um, this is the first reference to the, the word ecclesia in the, in the New Testament. And of course this was the word that Jewish people were acc- accustomed to hearing in the context of the people of Israel, the ecclesia of God of the Old Testament. And, you know, the Lord is saying, I'm building a new Israel on the, the basis of faith in in me as as God's son. So we need to remember that the church is built by by the Lord Jesus. It is not man-made. It is not a human social club. It may appear like that. The visible church may appear like that, but the invisible church, the true church, is not. And of course, He's not building a load of churches. He's building one church. Um, he's an on that same simple faith in Him as as God's Son, and He says that um, the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And He's alluding to this rabbinic idea that Abraham sat at the gates of hell to prevent the circumcised falling uh, falling into it. And I think the Lord is saying, no, it's not that. It's not all your Jewish uh, fiction and all that. It is simple belief. In me. It's not even descent from Abraham. It's not being circumcised. It is believing in me. Now Jesus says to Peter. Upon this rock I will build my church. And you need to parallel that. With some other things the Lord says to Peter. Luke 22 verse 32. When you are converted. Strengthen your brethren. So it's as if his conversion. Was believing in Jesus really. As the son of God. And building the Lord's Church, strengthen your brethren, and then when uh, he meets Jesus uh, in John twenty-one by the uh, by Galilee, um, he says, "You know all things, and you know that I love you." Peter says, "Just like he said here, I believe you're the Son of God." And Jesus said, "Feed my sheep, feed my lambs, and so I will build my church, strengthen my strengthen your brethren, feed my sheep. This is all part of the same thing." But, of course, for Peter to do that, he had to go through the pain of denial and repentance and, and all the bitter tears that, that went with it. And what's so significant when you when you come to, uh, to Peter's letters is that he tells all of us, 1 Peter 2, verse 5, to build up the house of God. So he's saying that, look, the pattern of my life, the, the, the shape of my earlier life is actually a pattern for all of you that this is what you shall all go through one way or another well the Lord says verse 19 I will give unto you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth should be bound in heaven I don't think that this means that sort of Peter had the arbitrary power to say to some guy "Right, like, you're out forever and you're in not at all Um, The idea of uh, having the keys means that you can unlock or open, Uh, you you can open or shut the kingdom. And of course the Lord in Matthew 23 says to the scribes that you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. The job of Peter was to undo the damage done by those scribes and to open up the kingdom, entry into the kingdom for others. Now, in the last day, the door shall be shut. Matthew twenty-five, ten 10, quite clear that in the parable there, that the foolish virgins come too late and the door is shut. They can't get into the kingdom. And yet, I think what he's saying is that by the preaching of the gospel in this life, you have the power to give the way into God's kingdom to men and women. And you also have the power to close it. Well, how do you close it? Well, you can close it by simply not preaching to them. Or you can close it as the scribes did in Matthew twenty-three, thirteen. You can shut up the kingdom of heaven against men by uh, telling people, look here, you've got to do this, 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 this to get into the kingdom of God. And people say, ah, oh, I can't do that. Sorry, mate. I, I can't get to that. I, I just can't do that. Like, you know, there's people who say you've got to, you can't be divorced and be married. You can't smoke. You can't this. You can't that. And there's people who say, sorry, I'm sorry. I'm only a human being. I, I, I can't I can't do that, I can't quit, I can't uh, give up my second marriage, whatever. And if you're saying, yeah, well, sorry mate, then you're not going to be in the kingdom of heaven, then you have shut up the kingdom against those people. Whereas if you offer people the way of grace, you are opening the kingdom to people, just as Jesus did. So I think that's why... Uh, this language is repeated in chapter 18, verse 18, about all of us, about all the disciples. Whatever you shall bind is bound, or whatever you loose is loosed. It wasn't only to Peter, and it's not only to the disciples, it is actually to all of us. Because we have all got the keys of the kingdom in our hands. And this is a, an amazing idea, it really is an amazing idea, that we have got so much power. And we all suffered, I guess, with uh, from time to time with our struggle with you know, Victor Frankl, you know, man's search for meaning. But what is my meaning in this world? What is my my path in this in this planet? Why am I here? And I think that the the reason that is given uh, here is that do you know what you've got the power to save people. It's not as if, well, if you don't do it, God will get someone else to do it. Or if you mess up someone else's life by telling them that, you know, you you can't do this, you can't do that. Well, okay, God's going to come and fix it by getting some other guy to come and straighten out the person you damaged. No. You see, I don't think God works like that. I, I don't see it in the Bible. I don't see it in observed experience. And I don't see it in the teaching of this passage that you've got here, where we're told, look, you have got the keys. And you can open and you can close. Eternity to other people. Now that would imply to me, well, it would imply uh, states, doesn't it, that there is not necessarily a plan B, that you are the only plan, and that is what talk about man's search for meaning. I mean, we have got huge meaning, huge significance, and, and it's this struggle with this lack of significance, this lack of meaning. That, that everybody struggles with. Whether you have the most amazing, glittering career uh, uh, behind you, or, or as you think, in front of you, or, or whatever, in the end, you still struggle with this. And the only ultimate meaning is that you have opened the way to eternity to this guy, and to that woman, and to her, and to him, and to them. That is what gives ultimate meaning. And it's, gives, it cuts right across the social and economic kind of board there, that no matter who you are, rich, poor, or whatever, that beside the end or there, the point is, who have you brought to the kingdom of God? To whom have you opened the kingdom? To whom have you opened eternity? Well, he charged them, verse 20, from that time onwards. And um, In fact, uh, that idea of charging, uh, this is um, used five times by Matthew but never in the other Gospels. And again, that has the ring of truth to me in terms of eyewitness account, that if we were all listening to one person like you're listening to me, well, somebody will notice a particular style or action or turn of phrase or whatever that the guy uses, but the, the fellow next to him won't notice that. But you might be particularly struck with the number of times I have, for example, used the word guy in, in the last uh, 20 minutes of this presentation, and the other guy sitting next to you didn't even notice that I used the word, you know? And, and so when you just notice this little thing, that he charged them, and Matthew noticed that, the others, well, they like didn't write it down. They didn't notice it in that sense. Of course, it's all under inspiration, but inspiration works through a human factor. It works through, in that sense, human observation. And so, just a little, en passant, really, just, uh, just encouraging me that we have here eyewitness accounts of what really happened. Not guys, there you go know, again. Not guys, some years later, sort of roughly writing down what they reckon might have happened. This is actual eyewitness account, and I think there's evidence for that within within the actual nature and structure of the Gospels and the words and the style that is used. So, from that time, he starts to show them how he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things, be killed and be raised again the third day. It's as if, as I say, he is this wonderful teacher. And once they go into Caesarea Philippi, as they cross the, the line, uh, the, the uh, state line, as it were, they, they come into, into this new territory, And uh, then he says, right, now we're here, now I can give you the question. Oh, wow, you answered real nice. Okay, now we can go to the next bit. And he starts to give the big one about how he's going to die, and and all the details, etc. But he turned, uh, verse 23, and says to Peter, get behind me, Satan, because... Peter has said to him, no, 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 this shall not be unto you. Many times you get the impression that Jesus had the habit of walking ahead of the disciples with them following him. It's mentioned a number of times in Luke particularly that he went ahead and they followed him. So the fact he turned and said to Peter would suggest that Peter is walking behind him. And you may like to underline a few things in your in your Bibles. Get your get your pens out. Um, verse twenty three. He says to Peter, "Get behind me." And then he says uh, twenty four. If anyone will come after me, come after me and get behind me are the same the same word. And then you got the same word again. Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So you see, you can put a. A blue circle, that's what I'm doing with my green-coloured pen. Uh, Around 24, follow me. 24, come after me. And 23, get behind me. It's all the same word. Physically, Peter is following Jesus. He is walking behind him. And yet Jesus turns and says to him, get behind me. More like, but I am behind you. If you're really going to walk behind me, if you are really going to come behind me, then pick up my cross, your cross, and walk behind me. Now this is a real challenge, is it not, to you know, Sunday morning only Christianity, Sunday school Christianity, that we're trooping behind him, because that's our culture and that's how we ended up and, uh, yeah, I'm a Christian. But to really follow him is to take up his cross and to follow behind him. Therefore, why was Peter so uh, anti the idea of the Lord Jesus uh, dying on the cross? The answer of Jesus to him is, you take up your cross. In other words, Peter was so anti the idea Of Jesus dying on the cross because he sensed, maybe subconsciously, but he sensed that if he died on the cross, I also must die on the cross. All that is true of him must be true of me to some extent and in some way. And if he died on the cross, I don't want to do that. No, don't you do this. And the answer of Jesus to him is, Peter, take up your cross, your cross, and follow behind me. And this is very powerful, is it not? This is very powerful. This cuts right through any idea of cultural Christianity, that it is about picking up the cross. And I think this would explain why, for me at least, uh, and I suspect it's for you as well, when we come to the crucifixion accounts, the actual record of the crucifixion accounts, There is a a temptation to skim read it, to say, oh, poor Jesus, oh, yeah, look, yeah, I know what's going to happen, let's get through this. You know? And I wonder if that, if that reticence to actually engage with the record of his actual physical crucifixion is not simply, is not simply because, oh, poor Jesus, oh, I get upset about it. If you get upset about it, get upset about it, great. You cry some tears for Jesus. Great. You wouldn't want to avoid doing that, would you? I I suspect that our real reason is because, and again, this is unspoken. This is deep in in the human psyche of unconsciousness. I suspect that it's because we recognize that his cross is my cross. That whatever is true for him, ought to be, must be, true for me, to some degree. And the Lord says to him that, um, verse 25, whoever will save his life is going to lose it. Whoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. And Mark eight thirty-five: the parallel, just adds the words, for my sake and the Gospels. So how in practice do you lose life you lose life in the work of the gospel that is how you suffer that's how that that is the way to lose friends that's the way to lose your family that's the way to suffer is to give your life for the sake of the gospel and i think he particularly does have the work of the gospel in mind because he says uh, verse 26, what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world? Well, there is only one other reference to Holos Kosmos, the whole world. And it's the only other reference in the whole of the New Testament is also Matthew. And it's in the context of the, uh, the Great uh, Commission That the gospel is to be taken to the whole world. And so I think the implication is, if you gain the whole world, if you become the president of the country or the company or whatever, you've lost your life. The real work is to win the world, is to take the gospel for the gospel's sake to the whole world. And he talks there about what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? The Hebrew and Greek words that are translated soul have got a, a very wide range of meaning. Now, there is no immortal soul in the commonly accepted sort of Greek sense of it, uh, Greek philosophical sense of it. Death is unconsciousness. and we, get, we are dust and we go back to the dust. And the hope of the Bible is the resurrection of the body. But, the word soul has is, is got such a wide range of meaning. And in a sense, it's like Jesus says, fear those who, who can't kill the body, uh, who, who can kill the body but can't kill the... Sorry, don't fear those who can only kill the body but can't kill the soul. But fear God who can destroy both soul and body. So I think you've got to be a little bit careful in, your, in our definition of the word soul. I I would say that yeah, at times it does just mean the body, at times it does just mean the person. Um, but yeah, I I would stick, and as I say, it's in such a wide range of meaning. It's 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 facile to choose just one word to say yeah, this word means this. Um, but I would say that that the sense really is of the human person, and he seems to be saying here that. You don't want to lose your own soul. You want it to be saved eternally. That means that salvation in that sense is a very personal matter. That I, as the sum of all my experiences in this world, I as the character and the person that I am, that has been formed and forged by life, that I've been through, just as you are, the unique person that you are, because of the unique range of experiences that you have had, I and you, we personally shall be saved. That Duncan will be saved, that I shall stand again on this earth. Uh, that I, as the you know, the guy who is called Duncan, shall live eternally, that I will be saved. And as we you know, as we face our grave planks, I mean that is what ultimately you're looking for, is it not? That I shall get out of here. Not in some impersonal sense, that I personally want to live forever. Not with, that the situation that we are in now, sinning and failing and limited by our own dysfunction and so forth. But I personally want to be saved. And this is the good news of the Gospel. That the soul, as in the whole person, shall be saved. And the Lord is saying that, well, give everything for that, because what can a man give in exchange his soul. And the last verse, there are some standing here who shall not taste of death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Well, of course, the next chapter goes on, and it's the same in all three of the synoptics, and uh, the next chapter goes right on to talk about the transfiguration, and it's easy to think that that's what he's referring to, but um, it, another option would be that... Jesus really did believe that there was the absolute possibility that he could have come back in the first century in his kingdom. But that was delayed. I believe it was delayed. Um, Yeah, those two options are there. But uh, I want to leave you with a third one. He, in the context, I mean, why is he just starting to say this? If that's what he means, that, oh, by the way, there's going to be a transfiguration coming up for some of you. Or, by the way, you know, I'm going to come back real soon in my kingdom. How would that fit the context? Because he's talking about those who uh, are not going to be saved because they have chosen to gain the whole world for themselves in this life, and uh, they're not going to get the, the life to come. So I think he sort of is ending this section with a warning about condemnation. Let's just read it. There are some here who will not die until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So they're going to die. But they're not going to die until they see Jesus coming in his kingdom. Well, this sounds to me as if he's saying that there are going to be people who will see him coming in his kingdom and then will die. Well, that is what the words say, actually. They will see him coming in his kingdom and then they will die. Well, you know, this, all the ideas that he might be talking about the uh, the disciples, or the faithful amongst the disciples, etc., I mean, it can't be. He says, when you see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom... Then these people will die, this category of persons will die. I would put this together with the the way that several times the Lord says in his teaching to the Jews, to the unbelieving Jews, You won't see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Every eye shall see him, including those who pierced him. And this is his final parting shot really at his trial to the Jews when he says, you guys will, well, he doesn't use the word guys, but you know, he says, you will see, you will see me sitting on the right hand of, uh, of the throne of God and coming in the clouds of heaven. He's used this idea at least three times. And I'd say that this is a, another example uh, uh, of where the Lord is saying, you know what, there's some people who will be resurrected and will see me coming in my kingdom all too late. And then they will die with bitter, bitter gnashing of teeth. What a fool I have been. I could have been in this wonderful kingdom. I've seen it with my eyes. I've seen this promised land, as it were, but I cannot enter into it. And now I shall die. That is the weeping and gnashing of teeth. That is what is symbolically referred to as Gehenna fire. That is the awful torture of mind that the rejected will go through. Not eternally, but they will go through it. And, you know, condemnation, judgment has got teeth. And it is going to be a terrible process for those that are rejected. And let us not forget that. Let us not forget that. That those who spurn God's grace and will not give themselves to him, this is clear Bible teaching, that this is going to happen to them. There is going to be an awful, terrible condemnation. And what is it? You know, this, it's not going to be literal torture. God is not so primitive, he has no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but the torture is going to be self-inflicted. Seeing the Son of Man coming in his kingdom, wow, this is all for real. What they said was true. What I read once or twice in the Bible was true. And I have seen it, and it is for real. And now I must die. That, I believe, is the right interpretation of these words, and I suggest that any other interpretation when it's talking about the transfiguration, or the possibility of Jesus coming back in the first century, uh, rather stumbles over the very obvious statement that this category of persons will die when they see the Son of Man coming. And uh, that, I think, uh, requires that we read it the way I've suggested. Which leaves us, of course, with a, with a tremendous warning. And let us never forget this. Of the eternity which we may miss. The Son of Man shall come in his kingdom. And whatever we decide in this life, we shall see it. Because we shall be resurrected. We shall stand before him in judgment. And we shall see it. But the question is, will we be there with him?